We're working our way through the book of Galatians. This is part four. We finished up to verse 10 last Sunday. And so today, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. Hope you have your Bible. You should no more come to church without your Bible than come without your without your pants. That's right. Always have a Bible in church. That, by the way, I got that from Jesus. You should no more come to church without your Bible than your pants. Galatians 1, starting at 11. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source. I was not taught it. But it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. He was deeply religious. 15. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. Interesting, eh? His son in me. Not to me, in me. So that I could preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. That's the third time he stressed this idea. 17. I did not go up to Jerusalem, to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia, came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, Peter. And I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 20. I declare in the sight of God, I'm not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remain personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. We're aware, Lord, none of us brings very much when we come and hear your word. We're grateful that just as your word in the opening chapters of Genesis, your word created out of nothing, that when we, when we hear your word, it does the same thing in our hearts. It, it, it creates out of nothing. We don't have to bring great spirituality we come and hear your word and your word creates, it generates something in our hearts that wasn't there before. Thank you for the power of your word. We're blessed. There are places around the world right now where one church would love to have one copy of the scriptures. And so help us to treasure your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the whole 
first chapter of Galatians is, is uh, just full of wonderful, edgy Christian insights. I mean, the whole chapter is an expanded statement of Paul's um, stunned surprise over the reaction of these Christians to those who would challenge the truth claims of the gospel. You know how the Judaizers came out of Jerusalem, naming the right names, carrying the heavy credentials, telling these new converts in the Galatian churches that in addition to receiving Christ, they needed to come under the old covenant. And we've been studying that for several weeks. Paul is just, Paul is amazed that these Christians are actually turning from truth to error. That's in that Galatians 1.6. I am, there it is, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Just as an aside, I find it interesting that Paul frames their tolerance for others' views as, as deserting, as deserting, turning away from Christ. I mean, we usually think of our sort of tolerant, inclusivist inclinations as being accepting of others. Paul describes it as turning away from Christ, deserting God. And, and Paul can't understand why these people hadn't reacted as strongly as he did to the false teachers. Look at that in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. Now, now think about it for a minute. We are amazed that Paul would utter such strong, seemingly intolerant language about these false teachers. Paul is amazed that we wouldn't. Paul can't understand how anyone who claims the gospel as precious, he can't understand how any Christian can remain uh, emotionally, intellectually unmoved when the gospel is belittled or distorted or compromised in any way. In Paul's view, allegiance to Christ means defending an absolutely uncompromised gospel message. Today, Paul's still, he's still not ready to let this theme go. Typical of Paul. He continues his argument for the truth and for the authority of his message. So, point number one. Paul's gospel is not, he says, according to man. I get that in 11 and 12. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is, okay, not of human origin. I did not receive it from a human source. He's saying the same thing. He wants to say it again. I was not taught it. But it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Just, just on the side. The gospel was not something... Let me clean this up. Uh, like that. We have the technology. When he says he wasn't taught this, something, something taught, something designed, 
planned to answer to human reasonings and human objections. The, all these, the trendy thing now, all these people deconstructing their faith as though God revealed the gospel just to answer to all of my fallen objections and questions and reasonings. Paul said, is that what you think? That this is just something I was taught that I put together to satisfy your intellect? Because that's not the way it worked at all, he said. I wasn't taught this. I didn't, I didn't construct this just to have something clever to persuade people. God never revealed the content of his gospel to answer to all the queries of my fallen mind. And by the way, if you want to start deconstructing something, don't start with deconstructing your faith. Start with deconstructing the culture. Because you can't step out of one sphere of reference without stepping into another. And it's far easier to deconstruct the lunacy of the culture surrounding the gospel than it is to deconstruct the gospel. He says, I didn't get this from a human source. Verse 12. Apparently everything hinges on that in Paul's mind. He builds this whole argument, his whole case, around this declaration. He probably has two things in mind here. One primary and the other secondary. So primarily, Paul means his message wasn't his own mental concoction. It came out of, it came out of God's heart, not out of Paul's head. And this is the way Paul repeatedly describes his message. I love his words in Romans 1, 1, where he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the, look at, the gospel of God, he calls it. Whose idea? God. God. This is the only way Paul can think of the gospel. The only proper way to label it is the gospel of God. There's simply nothing human about its origin. Its authority outstrips anything else. It can't just be lined up with any other religion or philosophy. Paul had oodles of both. That's the primary thing. Secondarily, Paul probably means his message wasn't tailored to meet human desires and instincts. It, the gospel then, this is important, the gospel then and now carries its own offensiveness to the culture into which it enters, then and now. So the implication is that these false teachers, these false teachers have, have tuned up the gospel a little bit so that it would better harmonize with their listening ears as they presented it. I get that in verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to, here's why. Here's why, here's why people change, compromise, adapt the message of the gospel to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. I've often wondered, this is just me and you don't have to buy this. I've often wondered how many of the, you know, you, you, 
been in a church here for 40 years. But I've often wondered how many small adjustments made by churches to appear more contextualized in their setting, uh, more uh, seeker-sensitive in their approach. And that, that may not be a bad thing, but I wonder if sometimes we've made little adjustments so that what we proclaim will be less offensive to the surrounding culture. Just a little less offensive. These false teachers, Paul says their gospel was more attuned to human pride, human accomplishment. It left people with their own religious rituals and work efforts intact. In fact, Paul says this is why their words had such appeal. Paul's gospel, on the other hand, left him persecuted and maligned by religious leaders of his day. I mean, he says a mouthful when he says this gospel was not, quotes, according to man. It didn't come from man and it didn't appeal. Point number two. Pausing to get the big picture from Galatians 1. Take a minute. Catch the impact of what we've been studying these past four Sundays, three Sundays. It's not complicated if you skin it all down to the basic framework. Two different messages are competing for these people's minds and hearts in Galatia. Both messages are claiming to be true. And Paul just refuses to leave any of us with the impression that both are true or both even can be true. Two conflicting messages can't possibly both be true. And what's more, it's always of infinite value, top priority, to discover what the truth is and where the truth is to be found. What gives us the right to cross borders, to cross the street, or to cross the ocean, to go to people who already have their own religion that they sincerely partake in, sometime for generations? What gives us the right to say, you're not walking in the truth and you need Jesus Christ? That's a very nervy thing to do. What gives us the right? A lot of evangelicals, in fact, are abandoning that view. This is a bold message, I think, for a church like ours. And I say this because our culture doesn't press us to dig for truth very much anymore. We're, we're bombarded with opinions about everything, the TV programs, the movies, the blogs. Everyone has a message to sell you. They will tell you which toothpaste really does whiten best, which antacid will take away gas most effectively, which diet will take the weight off most effectively. The pretend truth, I mean, it's all over the place. But there is still, with, with all of this coming at us all the time, there's an important mental shaping that is taking place. I get it. I understand that most of us know full well how the media, how advertising works. I know we don't actually believe everything we're constantly being told. That's not my point. 
I think there's something much more important and much more sinister taking place when we're surrounded by all sorts of messages that we really can't take that seriously anymore. Here's the problem. All these empty opinions, they're, they're, as they're bombarded at us over and over again, thousands of times each week, my concern is that we not only actually believe those things are true. That's not my concern. My concern is we come to think that nothing much is actually true. That truth itself isn't that important and isn't that attainable anyway. Nobody fights for truth on most television shows or on the internet. Most schools, colleges, universities have given up the belief in absolute, objective, non-relative truth, especially in the realm of philosophy, religion, the formation of values and worldviews. Tolerance means not just that we tolerate views we disagree with. Tolerance now means all the views have to be equally correct. In 1978, Alexander Solzhenitsyn prophetically spoke these words at the commencement address at Harvard University. He said, quote, truth eludes us as soon as our concentration on it begins to flag, all the while leaving the illusion that we are continuing to pursue it. Here's C.S. Lewis in his classic work, The Screwtape Letters, and Lewis writes these words of instruction. They come from a senior devil to a junior devil on how to keep thinking people from following Christ. How do you do it? The senior devil says to the junior devil, your man had been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible ideas dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines primarily as true or false, but as academic or practical, old-fashioned or contemporary. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from Christ and the church. You just wonder, eh, if the prophet Isaiah might have been thinking about all of this? Isaiah 59, 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far off. Do you see that? Truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty cannot enter. Church, listen. Care more about truth than you care for unity care more about truth than you care about peace. Care more about truth than you care about love. And if those words shock you, you need to think them through again. Because the only way you have any hope for peace and love and unity in Christ is with the absolute objective truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Start with truth. Adding to the Christian's dilemma is the fact that for most of us, 
What we do to earn our living has nothing to do with our capacity to know and prove absolute, ultimate truth. You can earn a great living in this world. You can enjoy a great deal of pleasure and leisure with absolutely no commitment whatsoever to absolute truth. But you can't follow Jesus Christ without a passionate, informed commitment to absolute truth. So, so my point is, this is the kind of world you and I must live our Christian lives in. We are to be, quote, lights in this dark world because, because in a place where nobody cares about the truth of Jesus Christ very much, we care about it more than we care about anything else. That truth is offensive to most of the world around us. Most of the people we have to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ now don't want to be reached. There will be a high price to pay. We need to be marked by a commitment to non-relative, historically factual, divine revelation about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so the next issue in our text is this. How will Paul defend these great statements about the truth of the gospel? Point number three, Paul outlines his life before and after his conversion to Jesus Christ. I hope you noticed it. In support of his strong claim that neither his message nor his office was of human origin, Paul describes the circumstances of his life before coming to Christ and after coming to Christ. So A, before his conversion, Paul said he was a violent persecutor of the Christian faith. I get that in 13 and 14. You have heard, this, Paul was famous. You've heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church. Isn't it interesting that when he talks about Christians and the gospel, that's, that's God's church. I tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. So it wasn't just the case that Paul was uninterested in Christianity before his conversion. Most, Christ most pagans aren't interested in Christianity before their conversion. It's not that. It's that Paul was diametrically opposed to all things Christian. He said he went after those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. He hunted them down. He had them executed. He plundered their homes and their property. He was carrying out a holy war against Christianity. Because Paul said he was such a zealous Pharisee, he naturally viewed the Christian faith as destructive to the regulations, the laws, the ordinances that he viewed as absolutely essential under that covenant. So, so Paul actually viewed Christianity as the arch enemy of godliness. Now, why does Paul take all the time to tell us this? What's the reason for all this information of Paul's past? Why all these ugly details? I want you to see how he builds his argument. The best way to do it is not just to read verse uh, 13 and 14, but to read 12 and 13 together. 
Galatians 1, 12 and 13, talking about the gospel. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what we've been talking about. For, he's, he's saying, this, the reason for all of this is right there. For, you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism, I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. So, verse 13, Paul says, 13 is the proof of verse 12. That's what, that's what he's doing there. Paul is using his past to prove that the gospel wasn't just some lifeless teaching that he received from human teachers and sources. He says, look at my life. Do you honestly think I was so radically turned around just because of some conversation I had with some religious instructor. My life was steeped in those kind of traditions. That's the point Paul is making. He's turned 180 degrees. He had gone from gladly killing those who named Christ, thinking he was pleasing God doing it. Gladly killing those who profess Christ to laying down his life for the gospel. Paul says, there's the change. How do you explain it? He had come to embrace a faith that totally demolished the passionate religious training of his whole adult life. So there has to be an adequate cause for such a dramatic effect. To say that this change just came from some information he picked up somewhere, some conversation we had, makes no sense at all. Let me tell you what happened to Paul. You know this story. Here's how Paul explained the change in his life. He talks about it in Acts chapter 26. A little bit longer text. Read it. Follow along as I, as I read it. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while I was on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those traveling with me. We fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking in Aramaic. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That's what Paul is describing in, in Galatians 1, the change in his life. He's talking about this. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I like this, open their eyes. Do you ever wonder why? Why in this whole commissioning does Paul have to be struck blind temporarily? 
And I think the reason is his mission is going to be to open people's eyes. And God, God wants Paul to see the kind of drastic change that's going to come as people, it was there by faith I received my sight. We sang about it. How big a change is that going to be in people's lives when they hear about Jesus from Paul? And, and the way God's going to show Paul the big transformation is he's going to take away Paul's physical sight and then open his eyes again. There, Paul. That's the difference the gospel makes. And that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians 1, the transformation of his life. Of course, this isn't a mad-made message. Verse 12, of course, I didn't just pick it up from some other teacher. Verse 12, because, 13, look at my life. It's totally changed. That's what the gospel does. There are all sorts of things you can do for your life. Maybe you're listening to this now. And there's all sorts of things you can fix. You can, you can have a better diet. You can quit smoking. You can try and quit pornography on the internet. There's all sorts of things you can do. You can lose some weight. But I'll tell you what you can't do. You can't have your sins removed. And you can't have eternal life. And you can't have the kind of transformation Paul is talking about where you see glory in the things of Christ. You can't do that. You need Jesus for that. B, we're almost done. After his conversion, Paul says he refused immediate consultation with any of the other apostles. It's in 15 to 24. Let me just read it to you. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had been apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia, came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas. I stayed with him 15 days, 19. But I didn't see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And I declare in the sight of God, Paul says, God's my witness. I'm not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, I remain personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept saying, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. So the obvious point Paul intends us to see is that he wasn't just copying what he learned from the other apostles in Jerusalem because he says, I never even went there. So in other words, Paul's witness, Paul's witness is an independent witness to Christ. The origin of this message can only be explained supernaturally. That's why he says in Galatians 1.22, I remain personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. So we come back. Here's what we've been looking at. Back to this issue of truth. What are you going to believe? There's all sorts of religions out there, philosophies, ideas. Paul's message is to be received 
and the false teacher's message is to be rejected. And Paul Black backs up his claims with historic evidence that the truth stands up to examination. And, and why does it matter? Well, it matters because heaven and hell hang in the balance. There's things you, you don't need to know. And there's things you must know. And what you must know is why you were put here on earth. What your creator expects of you. How we all fall short of that. And what God has done to redeem us. Those are things you must know. Because, you, you, like me, you have the same two problems I have. Uh, I'm mortal. And I'm sinful. And those are two things I can't fix. That's why the truth of the gospel matters. And so Jesus, we're grateful. We're grateful that we have something more than uh, another religious opinion. We're so glad we have something solid as a framework under our faith. I pray, Lord Jesus, that I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll help us all to treasure the gospel and the truth of the gospel far more deeply. That we don't just have a whole bunch of ideas roughly floating around in our minds, but that there's, there's an anchor there. We want to see glory in the things of Christ as it deepens in our hearts and our lives. Just continue to keep your hand on our church. Uh, keep us kind in all the things we post and tweet. Keep us gracious. There's neither, Paul says, slave nor free, vaccinated or unvaccinated. I think that's in the footnotes in the body of Christ. And so keep your hand upon all of us and keep us close to you and keep us focused on the big things in life. In Jesus' name I pray and the church said, Amen. Amen.